are just so glad that you chose to be with us this morning. Hasn't this been an incredible time of worship? Well, now we want to continue in that spirit of worship and gather around God's word and enjoy his presence, which is what worship is all about. We're in this series about forgiveness. And the first message, we talked a lot about what it is and what it isn't. I hope you were here for that message. If not, just go back online. You can still see it on Facebook or you can go to our YouTube channel, Real Spring Creek Church, watch it there. Last week, we talked more about how to do it. How do we apply forgiveness in our life? What does it look like? How do you put it into practice so that you begin to enjoy the benefits? Today, we're going to a whole new level about forgiveness. Because you see, forgiveness is bigger than just what we need as individuals and broken people to do relationships with one another. It's what our world needs. It's what society needs. It's what nations can benefit from. And today's message I'm calling, Can Forgiveness Heal a Nation? As we get started, bow your heads with me. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you so much that we have this time to be in your presence even though we're, we're scattered across the metroplex and across this country and even around the world right now, you are with us. And you promise, Lord, where we gather together in your name, you make a special sense of your presence known. And we're counting on that right now, that you're going to show up in the midst of this time together in your word. You're going to show us things we need to know. You're going to comfort our hearts where they need to be comforted. You're going to challenge us where we need to be challenged. And I just pray, Lord, that by the time we say our final amen, that we will know that we have met with you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to read to you a small snippet from the Sermon on the Mount. This is in Matthew chapter 5. It happens to be verses 39 through 41. Jesus says, but I tell you, Do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, just to be honest, most Christians ignore this teaching altogether. Others, they see it as an invitation to bullies and spouse beaters to wipe the floor with their Christian victims. On the surface, the verses seem to be saying that Christians are to be cowards and to acquiesce to evil. It seems like Jesus is calling on us to be passive, like we're supposed to be human doormats and just let our abusers walk all over us. But let me just say right up front, nothing could be further from the truth. Bottom line, for most people, when it comes to being mistreated, A lot of us think only in terms of two options, either fight or flight. Either we resist or we don't. Either we submit or defy, we withdraw or confront, we surrender or plot our revenge. But can I tell you something from the heart? Jesus hates passivity as much as he hates violence. For Jesus, there's not just two choices to either run away or return violence for violence. What Jesus is actually doing here is teaching us a third way. In fact, I'll even go you one further. We are called to be a third way people. The third way of Jesus involves standing your ground. It involves seizing the high moral ground. It it, it means uh, making or creating an alternative to the violence that you've experienced. It means breaking cycles of humiliation. It means asserting your human dignity. 
It means being willing to suffer rather than retaliate. It's about exposing injustice in the system. See, what Jesus is teaching us here is to find creative, nonviolent ways to challenge the system in order to bring it down peacefully. To an oppressed people, what Jesus is saying is, don't acquiesce to oppression, but don't react violently either. Instead, find another way, a third way that's neither submission nor assault, that's neither fight nor flight. Instead, find a way to change the balance in the power equation. I mean, let's face it. In first century Palestine, revolution against the Roman-occupied world would have been suicide, which in fact history proved it was in 70 AD in the midst of the Jewish rebellion when the temple was literally cleaned off all the way down to the foundation. So Jesus isn't advocating armed revolution in these verses, but he is advocating revolution. And what I want to show you today is just how he does that in these verses. The way Jesus ultimately defeats the empire, defeats his enemies, is a nonviolent way. I mean, think about it. The empire kind of had a monopoly on violence and maintained its power through violence. But Jesus and Christianity eventually defeat the empire without a sword. The early Christians overcame it, not by overpowering it, but by defeating it from underneath. Now, I wish I had time to explain all that in this message. I don't. That's another message for another time. But let me say this. As a people, we tend to be drawn to dichotomies. Most of the world is like this. So if you're like this, you're not that unusual. For most of us, things are either all good or all bad. It's either my way or the highway. It's about what's right or what's left. It's about conservative versus liberal. It's about Republican versus Democrat. It's about you know, uh, capitalism versus socialism, you name it. It seems that we can boil all of life down to only two possibilities. There's something about the human condition that we like to narrow all narratives down to one of two choices. Now, in order to do that, most times we oversimplify, we universalize our own personal experience, and we listen to spin doctors who feed us what we want to hear instead of listening to God who tells us what's true and right and real. So here's my question. What if neither polarity is actually right? What if you can't boil life down neatly into one of two choices? And what if by aligning ourselves with one or the other end of the political spectrum, we've actually compromised who we've called to be as advocates and champions of the third way? That that maybe that what God has called us to be is to be above the system, not neck deep in it. What if we weren't made to fit neatly into any man-made system And instead, we're in the unique position to be advocates for the third way, a people committed to peace, to justice, and universal flourishing, a people that are committed to God and his ways. So what I want to do today is I want to spend some time right up front explaining to you this third way, what it looks like and what Jesus is teaching us in these verses. Then what I want to do is I want to show you how this has been applied on a national scale in a real-life case scenario. The final thing I want us to do is think about God's solution to our problems, to our modern problems, by applying these truths. So the first thing we're going to do is learn from the Sermon on the Mount this truth, never let evildoers set the terms of our opposition. 
Now, the question we need to ask right up front, because this is a statement that was in the verses I read to you a moment ago, is this question. Do we resist evil or not? Because on the surface, it seems that Jesus is saying we're supposed to not resist evil. Listen to what he said. Do not resist an evil person. But here's the deal. That word resist in the original language, in fact, this is not so much a mistranslation as it is an undertranslation. The Greek word here for resist is antistani. It's actually a military term. And it means a lot more than just resistance. It, it means counteraggression or to resist violently. So if you translate the word fully, it changes the entire meaning of the verse. A more literal rendering of the verse would be something like this. Don't react violently against the one who is evil. You see, Jesus isn't saying don't resist evil. He's saying don't resist evil with violence. He's calling us to a new way of resisting. Besides, Jesus never encouraged submission to evil. You won't find that anywhere in his teaching or anywhere in his practice. Instead, he's warning us to not respond to evil in kind. He's saying, don't let the oppressor set the terms of your response. Don't mirror evil. It reminds me of what the Methodist scholar Dr. Walter Wink once said. The problem of using violence always turns you into the very thing you hate. Or the really well-known biblical scholar N.T. Wright. The people of light are never more at risk than when they are lured into fighting the darkness with more darkness. So what Jesus is doing here is he's rejecting violence, not resistance. And why is that? Because returning evil for evil only intensifies the evil that already exists in the universe. We're here to combat evil, not contribute to it. If you haven't figured this out by now, evil just always has a way of escalating, doesn't it? If you have a knife, I go get my gun. If I get my gun, you get your machine gun. It's this never ending cycle and descent into evil. What Jesus is doing here is he wants to break us free of that cycle. As children of God, we punctuate evil, not accelerate it. N.T. Wright said it like this, hitting back keeps the evil in circulation. So again, herein lies our problem. Like I said earlier, we love our dichotomies. We want life to all boil down to one of two easy choices. So our default is to think in terms of fight or flight, either hit back or run away. As a result, we have to be taught a new way of dealing with violence and injustice. So that's what Jesus is going to do here. He's going to teach us about the third way. This is the road less traveled. This is the remedy to hate and injustice in the world. The third way, I'll tell you right up front, is not the Republican way. It is not the democratic way. This is the Jesus way of changing the world. So let me show you three demonstrations of creative, active resistance. The first thing Jesus adv advocates for is this, turn the other cheek. Here's what he told us. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Now, the key to understanding this verse is the one simple phrase, and the Bible's really clear to point this out, it says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek. Now, now think about this for a minute. Your right cheek. In a dominant right-handed world, if I square off to hit you and I swing at you, does my fist land on your right cheek? 
No, it doesn't. Not in a dominant right-handed world. If I choose to slap you and I bring it across your face, does that land on your right cheek? No, it doesn't. For me to hit you on your right cheek would require me to use my non-dominant hand, to use my left hand. But like I say, we're in a right-hand dominant world. So the only way to naturally strike you on your right cheek is by using the backhand to strike you. And by the way, this verse is really clear that it's not talking about a slug, a fist, a hit. It says the word slap for a reason. Because to strike you on your right cheek requires me to backhand strike you. What that means is Jesus is talking about an insult here, not a fist fight. Backhanding the right cheek is not intended to injure, but to humiliate. Now, this is where it's really important to understand some things about first century culture. Typically, you would never strike a peer like this because the fine was too high. It was too exorbitant. There's this ancient book, it's called the Mishnah, and the Mishnah is kind of a commentary or an interpretation of ancient Jewish law, and it tells us the various fines for striking a peer. For example, the first, if you struck someone with your fist, if I just haul off and I punch you, the fine for that is four zuz. A single zuz is a day's wages. So if I strike you with my fist, that's four days wages you lose. If I slap you, if I slap you with the open hand, it's 200 zuz, 200 days wages for a slap. But if I backhand slap you, if I slap you with the back of my hand, the penalty for that is 400 zuz, more than a year's wages. You think that doesn't make sense. Hitting you is a far worse injury than backhand slapping you. But again, you have to understand first century culture. First century culture is dominated by this shame, honor paradigm. In fact, it's still this way to this day. If I hit you, I treat you like an equal. To backhand slap you is to shame and humiliate you. Now, here's the deal. These damages were never paid if you backhand slapped an inferior. So this was the preferred way of chastising someone you consider to be an inferior. In their day, in their culture, in their understanding, this would be masters to slaves, husbands to wives, parents to children, rich to poor, and most importantly for our discussion right now, Romans to Jews. Now, none of that's right, and you know that's not right, but that was their understanding, and that's how they applied this law. Remember, the Jewish people at this time are a conquered people. The Romans oppressed and humiliated the Jews every day. So Jesus is talking about relationships where people believe they are unequal, where society has labeled some people as being inferior. So a backhand slap was an insult. The intention was not to injure, but to humiliate, to remind someone of their place. And if you were in a subordinate position, retaliation would have been suicidal. If you retaliated against the backhand slap, you would likely get beaten, and worse, if you did this to a Roman soldier, killed. The expected response would be cowering submission. You just had to take it. Now picture what Jesus just said. If someone has just backhanded slapped me to reinforce this stereotype, this, this distorted idea that society has out there that I am somehow inferior to the person who just slapped me, if they just slapped me on my right cheek and now I turn the other cheek, 
I've just robbed them of the power to humiliate me again. Why? Because if I turn like this, now they can't do it. My nose is in the way. You cannot naturally strike the left cheek like this. Instead, you would have to strike me. But to strike me would be to treat me as an equal. And that's not going to happen. Because the whole point of backhanding me in the first place was to reinforce institutionalized inequality. So what's happened is the victim of the slap has just given notice. You can't and won't shame me. Jesus is saying, if you're slapped on the cheek of inferiority, turn the cheek of equal dignity. It's the same as telling the person who demeans you to treat you like an equal because that's what you are. Turning the other cheek robs the oppressor of the power to humiliate you. So regardless of what you've been taught about this verse in the past, it's not about being a doormat, and it's definitely not about signing up to be somebody's punching bag. This is about standing up for yourself and your dignity. This is the Jesus way of issuing a challenge without returning violence for violence or stooping to the level of your oppressor. This is about making a statement. By turning the other cheek, the other person, the, other, the person of inferior status, they've refused to submit. They've seized the high moral ground. They've asserted his or her human dignity. In addition, they've thrown the superior off balance. Now, remember who Jesus' audience is. And the three examples he's going to share with us, his audience are not the people who are striking, initiating lawsuits, or imposing forced labor. Jesus is speaking to the victims. If anyone strikes you, if anyone wants to sue you, if anyone forces you to go a mile, these are the people who are humiliated by oppressors. And Jesus is teaching them how to make a stand without returning evil for evil. That leads to a second form of creative, active resistance. Hand over your coat. Jesus goes on in Matthew 5.40, And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Now, among the poor, which would have been the vast majority of Jesus' audience, there would only be two garments that were worn, their tunic and their cloak. In other words, an inner and an outer garment, their shirt and a coat. For a good number of people, that would be all they owned. So Jesus is now talking about a situation where someone is being sued for the very shirt off their back. So get this, this is not a robber trying to take something from you. This is someone who's taking you to court to sue you. You say, well, why would someone do this? Well, Israel, like so many societies, was one where there was deep, desperate poverty right alongside a rich class of people who were exploiting the desperation of the poor. This was not just happening in courts. This was happening with land and a lot of other things about first century culture. The man gets dragged into court because he owes a debt. He owes money, and he's most likely defaulted on a loan. Now, he might have been a farmer who, because of, of drought or pestilence, lost his crop that year. He could be a, a day laborer because of accident, illness, or injury. He's not able to do his job, so he defaults. There could be any number of reasons why he's defaulted on the loan, but there's no question he's defaulted on a loan. The point is, if someone is being sued for the shirt off their back, it's reasonable to say that person's not worth very much money. The creditor is going after their shirt because it's the only thing they have left. Friends, Jesus is addressing exploitation here. By the way, even our bankruptcy laws in this country are much more merciful to debtors than they were in the first century. 
So this is about someone who already has more than they need and yet is more than willing to take the very essentials from someone who has nothing. Now, don't get me wrong. It's fair for someone who's owed money to try to collect the debt, but it is stooping way too low to take the shirt off a man's back because that's the only thing they have of value that's left. So what Jesus is saying in this situation is give them your coat as well. In other words, strip naked in the court. Take off your shirt, take off your coat, make everybody see what this person is actually doing to you. They're leaving you with absolutely nothing. What Jesus is saying, he's saying to a person who's in a situation where they cannot win. They do, in fact, owe the money. And because the courts are corrupt, he has no chance of winning. They're going to lose. But Jesus finds a way to make a far more important point. In effect, what he says is dramatize the inequality and injustice without resorting to wrongdoing yourself. You see, if you're in this position, you can't refuse to pay the debt, but you can expose how shameful and evil it is for a person to demand the shirt off your back. You may not win the lawsuit, but you can unmask the aggressor's actions for what they really are. So the creditor is now exposed for what they are, a person who will stop at nothing less than the total destitution of others. This is a lot like what payday lenders do today. In addition, in exposing yourself, you expose a system that's corrupt, that would strip the poor of everything they have, but more importantly, of everything they need. And Jesus says, accept the law, but push it to its logical absurdity. The final creative form of active resistance is in going the extra mile. Of course, we hear this verse, if anyone forces you to go a mile, go with them two miles. This teaching is often used in a cliche way of extending yourself to help others, to give a little extra, to do more than what's expected. But to Jesus' Jesus' audience, this would have landed in a far different way. You see, a Roman soldier, and there were literally thousands of them everywhere, could conscript conscript and order a Jew to carry their belongings a distance of one mile and only one mile. It happened all the time, and the people despised this practice. The practice itself was called impressment. Any soldier had the right to turn any Jewish man or woman into a beast of burden to help them carry their packs weighing between 60 to 85 pounds. Now, the way the Jewish people saw this, this was aiding the enemy. Because not only are the Romans their conquerors, but now you're being forced to carry the very weapons and tools that are used to conquer you. They chafed at this practice of impressment. In fact, so much so, they are so bitterly resented that their vivid accounts in history of Roman armies approaching a village where an entire village would empty out rather than be conscripted into impressment and be forced to carry the Roman soldier's gear. It's so hated that by law, the Roman government limited impressment to one mile because the Roman government feared that this practice alone would fan the flames of revolution. And if a soldier demanded that a Jewish person carry their gear for more than one mile, they could be whipped by their superiors. So Jesus doesn't tell the people to revolt. He doesn't tell them befriend the soldier, get them all alone and drive a knife into their ribs. Jesus does nothing to fan the flames of violence. So why does Jesus suggest that they not only comply, but go beyond that? The question here, just like in the other two examples, is how the oppressed can assert their human dignity in a situation where they cannot, at least for the time being, change it. 
I mean, let's face it, these are Caesar's rules. And the Jewish people have no say-so in that. So imagine what would happen if you were a Jewish person and you arrived at the mile marker and the soldier reaches for his pack and the civilian says, oh no, let me carry it another mile. Instantly, the soldier would be flooded with these questions. What is this Jew up to? Are they trying to imply something in this? Is it an intentional provocation? Are they trying to get me into trouble? Are they planning to report me to my commander? Are they going to file a complaint? And what would happen to this soldier if his commander found out what had happened, that a Jew had carried his pack for two miles? Do you think his commander would believe that the Jewish people who hated this practice so vehemently had actually voluntarily agreed to do this? I don't think so. More likely, that soldier would be whipped. And, and, and if he hadn't found out, the commander hadn't found out, that soldier is living with his fear constantly of, but what if he does? And imagine this scenario, if you will, if this starts happening all the time, all over the place, with Jewish people throughout Palestine, where they go beyond the mile, how much longer would soldiers put up with that before they realize, this isn't worth it. These people are trying to get us into trouble and quit asking Jews to do this altogether. N.T. Wright made the similar kind of comments in his commentary where he says Roman soldiers had the right to force civilians to carry their equipment for one mile, but the law was quite strict. It forbade them to go to make someone go more than that. Turn the tables on them, advises Jesus. Don't fret and fume and plot revenge. Copy your generous God. Go a second mile and astonish the soldier and perhaps alarm him. What if his commanding officer found out? with the news that there's a different way to be human, a way which doesn't plot revenge, which doesn't join the armed resistance movement, but which wins God's way of victory over violence and injustice. You see, this is the perfect way of showing how wrong an action is without doing anything wrong, without returning evil for evil or violence for violence. Jesus is finding ways to break the cycle of oppression without becoming like the oppressed. What Jesus is describing is the third way. Because in these scenarios, the oppressed have seized the initiative. They've taken back their power. The soldier's thrown off balance by being deprived of the typical Jewish response. He never has had to deal with a problem like this before. And if he's enjoyed feeling superior to his victims and to the vanquished, he's not going to enjoy that today. And imagine this scene of a Roman soldier pleading with a Jewish man or woman to give him back his pack. You see, Jesus is encouraging second mile in order to earn extra credit in heaven or somehow kill the soldier with kindness. He's helping an oppressed people find a way to protest and neutralize an absolutely hated practice of the empire. In Jesus' day, like today, there were all kinds of people that imagined only two possible choices to all the injustice around them. There were people who sold out to the system, supported it, made friends with it, defended it. These were the Jewish leaders of his day. Then there were the zealots who sought to violently resist, to attempt to overthrow the system. And most everyone chose a side in that equation because they thought there were only two choices. And what Jesus does here is shows us a third way of not surrendering our values and not attempting insurrection. So let me briefly explain the third way and the healing of a nation. Because you see, people have learned from Jesus over the years. And there are many examples of this. I'm giving you just one today. And it's about South Africa. In 1994, it was a significant year because it marked 
the ending of a national nightmare for the people of South Africa. It was the final nail in the coffin of apartheid. For years, the government of South Africa refused to acknowledge the rights of black people. Black people in South Africa had no voting rights. They were legally barred from certain jobs. They were not permitted to criticize their own government. They, they were forced to travel within the nation of their birth with a passport at all times to prove that they had uh, permission to move about the country. And if that weren't bad enough, there was state-sponsored terrorism against blacks, awful atrocities done in the name of apartheid that left a gaping wound in the hearts of all the victims of this systemic evil. Now, one of the most remarkable stories told about this country is the man who was elected president in 1994. His name is known all around the world today. It's Nelson Mandela. When he was 45 years old, Mandela was unjustly arrested and put into prison. 27 years of hard labor. It wasn't until 1990, at the age of 72, that he was finally released. Now, what do you think that would do to you? He lost 27 years of his life. He'd never have him back. When Mandela left prison, there were no words of hatred or revenge. Instead, he emerges from this dark and brutal time as the embodiment of love. No one could ever accuse Mandela of speaking glibly about forgiveness. No one could say that he knew nothing about suffering. While he was incarcerated on Robben Island, they had to literally work all day long, breaking huge boulders into tiny stones. Over the years, the glare off of the limestone quarry ruined his eyesight. Everything possible had been done to break this man's spirit and make him into a hate-filled human being. But Mandela emerged loving people. In fact, one of the first gestures of forgiveness, four years later, when he was elected president of South Africa, he invited his white jailer to attend his inauguration as an honored guest. Mandela was a man who'd been vilified, hunted down as a dangerous fugitive, incarcerated for three decades, and yet he believed passionately the only hope for the future of South Africa was in forgiveness. So how do you heal a nation? How do you help a people heal who've lived all their lives under the boot of another people? Following the end of apartheid and the beginning of the new country, South Africans embarked on a new journey of dealing with its past. They did it by trying something that's never been done on a national scale, and that's forgiveness. Now, I'm not talking about national amnesia where, you know, we just try to move on and try to forget the past. A lot of nations have done that to their demise. I'm not talking about a general amnesty where by edict of the government, everybody who did wrong simply has their slate wiped clean and no accountability. And I'm certainly not talking about popular ideas of forgiveness and the distortions that are out there about forgiveness. Instead, I'm talking biblical forgiveness here, the way we've been defining it in this series, because that's the definition that the South Africans used. Forgiveness means dealing with the past in such a way that the past becomes the past. Mandela established a tribunal that would help the nation forgive without forgetting. They called it the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was chaired by Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Now, I wish I had the time to explain fully what all happened. It's a fascinating read. It's a powerful story. 
I would strongly encourage you to get Desmond Tutu's book, No Future Without Forgiveness, because it describes the process in detail. But what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission did was offer amnesty to anybody who was willing to come forth publicly under the glare of television lights and make a full confession of their wrongdoing. Now, there was a time limit on this. There was only so much time that you could come and do this and participate in this. After that time, if you did not willingly confess, then they would use the full resources of law enforcement to go after those people who had committed atrocities in the name of apartheid and prosecute them to the full extent of the law. So this situation was really unique. White people had had powers for years. They'd also covered their tracks for years. And they were also in this position to destroy any and all evidence of their crimes. I mean, how could you prosecute people like that when the very information you need to prosecute them is within their power to get rid of? And how do you do that in an economy where just one trial would likely cost millions of dollars? When you're already dealing with the legacy of millions of people in squalor and mass poverty because of the years of apartheid, these were not easy choices to make. Now, by the time the commission finished its work in 1998, it had heard the testimony of 21,000 victims of apartheid. They'd spent two and a half years listening to abusers ask for amnesty and forgiveness in front of their accusers. The stories that emerged were more terrifying than anyone had imagined. Does that mean the villains got off scot-free? Well, no, not, not at all. Many of those who came forward were at one time considered upstanding members of their community. And this was the first time that people in their community found out what these people were really like. Sometimes the first time families were finding out what their spouses were really like. There were a lot of divorces in the aftermath of what happened because there were confessions of being members of death squads who tortured innocent, unarmed victims. Now, as you can imagine, these, these atrocities were just horrific. A policeman called Vanderbrook told about how he and his fellow officers shot an 18-year-old youth and then burned his body. Eight years later, they go back to the family and they take the father and force the wife to watch as they burn her husband alive. She was in court to hear that confession and was asked by the judge what she wanted. And she said she wanted Vanderbrook to go to the place where they burned her husband's body to gather up the ashes so that she could give her husband a proper burial. But then she said this, and I just have to read it to you. Mr. Vanderbrook took all of my family away from me, and I still have a lot of love to give. Twice a month, I would like for him to come to the ghetto and spend a day with me so I can be a mother to him. And I would like Vanderbrook to know that he's forgiven by God and that I forgive him too. And I would like to embrace him so he can know my forgiveness is real. They say spontaneously in that moment, the people in the courtroom began to sing Amazing Grace, but Vanderbrook didn't hear a word of it because he fainted at what the woman had said. The world cheapens forgiveness with the phrase forgive and forget, when nothing could be further from the truth. Desmond Tutu said it so well. On the contrary, it is important to remember so that we should not let such atrocities happen again. It means taking what happens seriously and not minimizing. It's drawing out the sting in the memory that threatens to poison our entire existence. Forgiveness means abandoning your right to pay back the perpetrator in his own coin, but it is a loss 
that liberates the victim. So people hear this and know about what happened in South Africa, and they say, but what about justice? Well, let me tell you something. Telling the truth is a form of justice. When someone harms another, wrongs are committed. But what makes those wrongs worse is when they're denied. One of the best ways to right a wrong is to tell the truth about the wrong. So the Truth and Reconciliation Commission helped to expose the real truth about what had happened in the name of apartheid. The truth helped to heal that nation. And that leads me to this final question. Could forgiveness heal what's troubling our nation right now? I mean, how do we separate ourselves from a culture that's obsessed with this idea that if you do something wrong to me, I'm going to do something worse to you? Tutu says that reconciliation requires commitment to end this top dog, underdog cycle of retribution. I mean, think about it. How many times has the top dog in history been somehow subverted and brought to an underdog position? And when the underdog seizes power, they then just perpetuate the same kind of structural evil that the former top dogs did. And all that does is set up this cycle of retributive justice so that a person or a country remains stuck, locked in a state of animosity, and very, very sick. Christ's followers have been shown a different way, a better way, the third way. The Bible entrusts us as the kids of God with a very special ministry. It's described in 2 Corinthians 5.19. He has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. As Tutu once said, to work for reconciliation is to want to realize God's dream for humanity. This is why we betray our faith every time we get involved in this partisan, hateful rhetoric rhetoric that only divides people and does not bring people together. Every time we practice our politics above the kingdom, we betray the very kingdom to which we've sworn an allegiance because what God is calling us to is to be ministers of reconciliation, to be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem, to be good listeners, to enter as Christ did into a broken world so that he could redeem it from the inside out. You know, in a world with so much pain, so much hatred, so much animosity between the races, tribes, clans, and nations, people ask, is forgiveness realistic? And what South Africa taught us is if it could happen there, it could happen anywhere. Because that national forgiveness was inspired by the Jesus way of changing the world. So much so that, you know, in Rwanda, the Hutu extremists had killed nearly a million Tutsis. And after years of fighting between the Tutsis and the Hutus in Rwanda, it left that country with 100,000 people crammed into 19 prisons for genocide in a country that's smaller than the state of Maryland. Rwanda has actively engaged in this process of national forgiveness, has set up a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. They copied the success of South Africa. There's a major movement going on in Northern Ireland. You know if you know anything at all about history, about the long-term problems between Catholics and Protestants in that region. I mean, there's been murder, there's been mayhem, there's been bombings. And they're learning a new way. They're learning the third way. They're learning the value of forgiveness. In fact, right now, children in both Catholic and Protestant schools are being taught a forgiveness curriculum in hopes of ending the violence within this generation and in the ones to come. God wants to say to the world, to America, look at South Africa. 
They survived this national nightmare called apartheid. It ended. They had a problem and they solved it. And they did it with forgiveness. You know, without forgiveness, there is no future. There's no future between us as people in our relationship. There's no future for our nations. You know, I, I love the writings and the sermons of Dr. King. I think I've read nearly everything. But a couple of weeks ago, I came across a sermon. It actually looks like a snippet of a sermon, maybe 10 minutes. I mean, I don't know if it was a devotional thought somewhere or what. But there was a quote at the end of the sermon I've never seen anywhere, never heard quoted anywhere, but it's powerful and prophetic. Listen to what Dr. King said. Forgiveness is a process of life and the Christian weapon of social redemption. We're to go out with a spirit of forgiveness, heal the hurts, right the wrongs, and change society with forgiveness. Of course, we don't think this is practical. This is the solution of the race problem. Maybe our problems as a nation are not going to get fixed unless and until we fall on our knees before God and get back to his wisdom and reject the extremism on the right and the left and choose Jesus' third way of changing the world. You know, the truth is that forgiveness works. Forgiveness can set us free. But forgiveness is based on truth-telling. What if God's people, instead of joining up with the right and the left and blending our voices with them so that they're absolutely non-distinctive in a world filled with hate and turmoil, what if we became champions of the kingdom of God? What if we were champions of God's way? What if we were the ones suggesting a national conversation about what's happened in our country over the many years, of quick covering it up in our textbooks, about telling the truth about what happened, of owning what has happened, of being honest about what has happened, about ceasing to engage in the denialism and instead speak the truth so that the truth could be forgiven and we could move on with a brand new future instead of trying to pretend like it never existed? What if God's people acted like God's people? What if we were really Jesus followers? I don't know about you, but I am fed up to hear with what I see in my news feed, with what I see on the evening news, with what I hear so much in culture, because I cannot align myself with any of these man-made systems. I can't be a Republican. I can't be a Democrat. I can't be a libertarian. I can't be a socialist. There's good in all those parties. I get that. But there's evil in them too. I'm called to something higher than that. I'm called to the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is telling us in this passage, in the Sermon on the Mount, is we're called to live and to be a different kind of people in this world, a people who can be real difference makers because we can see the truth and honor the truth, believe the truth will set us free, and we can forgive the scars of our past and move on into a bright and glorious future. I don't know about you, but I'm going to be a champion of the third way. I'm going to be a champion of Jesus' way. And I hope that you'll join me in this prayer of commitment to do just that. Let's pray. Father, I, I ask right now that you would have your way. That, Lord, before that we would be a Republican or a Democrat or any other man-made label, that we would say we are kingdom kids first and foremost that the lens through which we will see the world is not through a partisan political lens, but instead through the lens of your truth and your word. That God, I would be a champion of what is real and right and true. 
I would be a champion of people that, that, that believes God, that we all should be given this opportunity to flourish. And if flourishing has not happened, that we find creative ways that are not aligned with the right or the left, but are aligned with your heart, your way of changing the world. This is not going to be easy in a society where we're bombarded constantly by propaganda and spin doctors who want to feed into us that, that just only fuels our fear. Instead, God, let us be a people of faith, a people who believe God, that the person who made us, who created us, who designed the very universe knows the best way forward for us all and help us to not just be advocates, but champions of those truths. I pray it in your precious son's name. Amen. So don't leave us. Hang around. We got a time where some of our pastors are going to come together to discuss today's message. Thanks so much for being with, with us. God bless you all. Thanks for joining us for the discussion. For those that are watching for the first time, know that we would love to see your comments below and see your answers to the questions that we have. So Josh, you want to take it from here? Thanks, Patrick. I appreciate it. I'm excited to have you guys here, Laura, Patrick. We're going to have a great discussion. But not like an easy week. It seems like I brought you. Super I brought light and in. Fluffy, yeah. yeah, I brought in the experts on forgiveness. <laughs> um, but also, it's one of those where we're going to have some hard conversations. But first, I want to know what is what is your default, your normal. What does it look like for you to forgive? How it comes naturally to you? What's that look like? Um, I'm a little bit of a people pleaser and also a little dramatic. So I have that immediate, oh, yeah, 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 it's fine. But then I might hold a little grudge and resentment. I'm better about that. I've gotten a lot better about that. But for a while, that was kind of my default was, yeah, I'm going to remember forever what you did because I thought that's how you um, don't let yourself fall into that again. And I've matured a little bit, thankfully, and um, it looks a little better now. And I think that I've learned how, um, you know, Yadi had so many powerful words when you guys first talked about this. It really is so much for you and just as much for the other person. I've been thankful enough or, or grateful enough that I have so many people that have given me grace and forgiveness. It's a little easier for me to do that now. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I hate uncomfortable social situations, even if I know the person really well. <laughs> So the thing about forgiveness is oftentimes I have no problem bringing up something that I feel like I need to work through mm -hmm. in order to give somebody forgiveness. Problem is, is that as soon as I start that, it immediately can become an uncomfortable situation, which I immediately try to get out of by downplaying <laughs> everything. I think that it's an unhealthy default to forgiveness. I think the healthy fault default for forgiveness, at least for me, is to acknowledge that I need to forgive this person and realize even if they don't do anything. I can still forgive them. And so I think that's also my default is to give forgiveness, even if somebody doesn't give me the right apology or the right thing that I need in order to work through it. Yeah. I think that's, that's wise to, to be aware. Like I don't, I want to pretend I don't need to forgive and there's nothing wrong. We're all good. Let's just sweep it under the rug. Yeah. But I'm going to remember forever everything you've ever done. Yeah. <laughs> I, I fit more into the gender stereotypes. They say that women often need to talk it out and sort it out after they've worked through the grudge. And men either need to like hit each other once and move on or just pretend like nothing's wrong. So, and so I kind of go that same way of, oh, man, he seems cool about it. I'm cool about it. Nothing's wrong. So obviously we've forgiven each other, I guess until they're out of my life and they maybe didn't forgive me or I maybe didn't forgive them. I just forgive and forget, but predominantly forget without practicing forgiveness. And that's hard. Yeah. 
But there's the third way that we're learning about in this third way where you don't have to be a punching bag, but you don't have to hold a grudge all the time. And there's this healthy resistance. So in your mind, uh, what does it look like to practice that healthy forgiveness where you're not turning into a punching bag, but you're not being ignorant as well. Yeah, I talk, um, I have two daughters and we actually talk about this a lot because they are also tend to be on the dramatic side. And um, it's really easy to say forgive and forget. And I love that Keith made that point that it kind of cheapens forgiveness when you do that, because to truly forgive somebody is, is a thing, especially when you there's the slight thing like, you know, your burger order was wrong. And then there's heavy forgiveness that costs you something. And so I think that line of, yes, we are called to forgive, but not to be a doormat. So as females, the reason I talked to them about that, I think there's a different sometimes societal pull to us to be ladylike and you're not supposed to stay mad and you're not supposed to stand up for yourself that way. That's a little hyper aggressive. Don't be like that. <laughs> and so it's that line of, um, like you said, extending that forgiveness and acknowledging there was something to forgive and then not holding on to that, but yet not letting yourself be put back in that position, that healthy resistant. So it's okay to say, I completely forgive that action, but it's not okay for you to do it again. And I will draw that line and I will, you know, put up those boundaries. Um, that's kind of what it looks like for me, I think. Yeah. I think it's interesting to also realize that no matter what, somebody's going to think you're a doormat. And no matter what, somebody's going to think you're really stubborn. Yeah. And so to really self-identify with with one of those things is one of the most important things. I think that Keith really brought up a great point when he was talking about uh, that if a soldier asked you to carry one mile to go two miles, because there were legal implications for that. And so you show like, I'm not a doormat, I'm going to do this willingly, and you're going to have to you're going to have to face consequences. Uh, I think that's also great because if you go to Israel, there's a, there's a place called the Villa Della Rosa, which is a, uh, it's a path that you can walk, which is historically the path that Jesus took mm -hmm. his cross um, from where he was given it to all the way to Calvary. Uh, what I love about that path is it's roughly about two miles, mm -hmm. which means somebody was willing to go the second mile for me. And so out of all the things that could describe Jesus, a doormat is not one of them, Yeah. which means you can go the second mile for somebody and somebody else is probably going to think you're a chump for doing so. But inside, you know, I'm not a doormat for doing this. I'm doing this yeah. because I know that forgiveness matters and that I can be strong in, in the face of it. Yeah, I, that's that second mile matters a ton, mm -hmm. especially considering that Jesus took that for us. And I think that's what we have as our example for forgiveness. That's the model that's been set. And I think about that. I'm, as I said earlier, I, I turn my cheeks all the time. It's like, yeah, it's no big deal. Sure, sure. I'm fine. Uh, so I'm more apt to be a doormat because I'm super trusting and what some people might uh, claim as naive. And I mm -hmm. think in my naivete, it's just, okay, yeah, we're fine. We're fine. We're fine. And so my whole life, I've, I've just given in. I've let people take more money from me or yeah, I'll cover you this time. I'll take care of that. Or uh, just I'm overly trusting. And I think we see patterns of people who, who need to step in without, you know, showing violence, without showing hate, step in and step up for themselves. <clears throat> I, I'm not going to be over trusting right now. I'm, I'm going to remove myself from an unhealthy place and put myself in a healthy place to where I can essentially forgive 
and, and in turn be forgiven, ideally. So for me, I think, don't be a doormat, but that doesn't mean I'm always going to swing back. There is something powerful about uh, peaceful resistance, as Dr. King modeled, if I'm, we're going to do this to show that we're not just sitting down, we're not going down yeah, without a fight, that's good. but our fight isn't going to look like the thing that we hate. Yeah. yeah. And oftentimes we do the thing we hate, we become the thing we hate by doing the thing we hate against the people that hate us. Yeah. And that's just cyclical. When I love the that point that you make, it's it's not passive. When you go that extra mile, you're not being passive in your forgiveness. And right. I, I love that. That taking that power back image. Yeah. Well, and forgiveness can heal a nation, as we saw with South Africa and apartheid. Yeah. Our nation needs some healing. Uh, what does that look like when you think forgiveness can heal a nation? What is the opportunity for us here? Yeah. So for me good old social media and just kind of seeing um, good people that I have a lot of respect for who I think are just having a hard time coming to terms with what some people are struggling with, right? On the opposite sides. I hate to say sides, but it does feel like that. So I think for me, I look at it and think we need to get rid of the big butt. <laughs> and that sounds funny, but what I mean is um, when you qualify excuse me, when you qualify your um, apology. So yes, slavery was horrible, but it was a long time ago. <laughs> of course there's racism, but I'm not. Yeah, I believe that there's bad cops, but not all of them are. Just anytime you have a but to your acknowledgement of something, I think you're belittling someone else's feelings. And it's okay and it doesn't mean you're a bad person or you're you're taking responsibility for something you really don't feel like you had a part in to acknowledge that it happens and happened and that there's still things happening and that it is systemic and far reaching. Just get rid of the butt. Say, I'm sorry. Say, I understand. And we've talked so much about um, finding someone different than you. Amazing conversations are there to be had. And yeah, sometimes you may need to apologize for something you had no active part in. So that person feels safe having those conversations with you. That's what that looks like to yeah. me. Get rid of the butt. <laughs> I honestly couldn't say it any better. So we'll just go with your answer. But I, I think you said it well, because uh, if somebody's trying to apologize to me and the second they add the butt, I feel like they're immediately defensive. Yeah. I'm not wanting harm on somebody else when I'm seeking forgiveness from them. So the second they try to defend themselves makes me feel like they don't really understand me. And so it's the opposite is true. If I'm trying to understand somebody, I don't need to throw in the defensiveness. Uh, I just need to really take something and be able to acknowledge it and be able to look at it for what it really is. And I think the powerful thing in forgiveness is when someone can realize they're wrong. Yeah but it's not always a necessary step in forgiveness. I can forgive someone before they even know how wrong they are. But I think for us as a nation, we need to begin to realize wrongs. And we're, we're getting so close to intense election primary or beyond primary season into yeah. a big election. So we have a lot of political divisiveness in our country that is revealing at its root, there's brokenness on every side of the aisle. It's not just two sides, but several sides. And no one's willing to say, well, we might have been wrong here, or we yeah. might have been off here. We're all too proud to say that. Uh, when we look at the race problem, uh, I love the quote that Keith shared about Dr. King. He said, we don't think this is practical, but this, this will, we're going to lead out in forgiveness. This will bring healing. This will solve the race problem. Yeah. And that's when we lead out with forgiveness. 
And again, I recognize we are three Caucasian people and, and yeah. we don't, we don't always get to have, uh, the voice because it's not our conversation to have, but we can lean in and say, we can own our portion of the problem. We can seek forgiveness, which there's not a lot of forgiveness seeking happening. And I think that would probably heal our nation a lot further if we'd remove the butt and say, yeah. okay, we can all agree there are different sides and different stories and subtexts and all this, but we know the problem is a problem. If we removed all the butts and just said, here's the problem, don't try to qualify it. Just know it's a problem. Yeah. We could all agree. Yeah, that's a problem and it needs to be solved. Please forgive me. Yeah. And in order for you to forgive me, we probably have to build some trust. For us to build trust, we probably have to spend some time together yeah. to understand each other so we can begin to empathize. Yep. So I hope we can do that. And I'd, I'd love to see what that looks like. We're seeing bits and pieces of it play out right now as, as we're still responding to the most recent racial incident. I think we're seeing a little bit of an uprising of forgiveness and yeah. healing, and I hope that continues for our nation and for the church and for God's people to participate in forgiveness to ultimately heal our nation. And I love that it's kind of um, the younger generation that's leading that. Yes. I think, I know they get called snowflakes, and <laughs> but they're having those conversations. They're putting themselves in other people's shoes better than some of us are at times. And I love that. I see that in my daughters. I see that in our students here. I see that in the 20-somethings that I have the honor to be, you know, buddies with. And it encourages me that we're moving the right direction. And so if we can jump on that bandwagon with them and take some of the wisdom we have and get behind their, their just selflessness of just being able to be wrong and listen, I think there's good stuff coming. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's much more than a trendy issue too. Yeah. It's something where we're saying this isn't just on trend. Change. We really do care and we yeah. want to see uh, unity here. While unity is trending, we want it to be more of a, a foundational core of who we are. So Patrick, Laura, thank you for the discussion. Uh, I, I look forward to reading the comments as people engage with this and hearing from our community group hosts about the conversation that others are having, because I, I think this is vital. Forgiveness is core to our faith. So let's keep practicing it. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Awesome. Right. Thank you. Thanks for being here.